you know, the reason we know about dark matter is because we know that it's influenced by gravity. So once again, here's this magnificent force, gravity, that stands completely apart from quantum mechanics, and I think from everything else, but it's, it's the most universal feature of all, and, it, and it's gravity. Welcome back to Relatively Certain, a science podcast straight from researchers at the University of Maryland. I'm Dina Gankina, and today we'll turn our attention to gravity, that great force that's pulling you down and making it hard to get out of bed in the morning. At least, that's my excuse. This episode is part two of our series on how precise measurements of atoms might help answer important questions across other areas of physics. In part one, we saw how clocks based on atoms might one day detect or continue to rule out theories about dark matter. If you haven't listened to it yet, that's okay. I forgive you. You don't need to listen to it first to understand what follows, but you might want to check it out to hear more about atoms and everything they've got up their sleeves. Today, we'll see how atoms might aid in our understanding of gravity. It may come as a surprise that there are any unanswered questions about gravity at all, given that... Yeah, it's still working. But there are some big puzzles lurking just below the surface. Our best modern-day understanding of gravity comes from Einstein's theory of general relativity. This works great with big things, but we know that in the microscopic world, quantum mechanics takes over. Problem is, quantum mechanics and general relativity don't play nice together. Well, one of the monumental efforts of physics is to create a theory of quantum gravity. And at this point, we have a quantum or we have gravity. You may recognize that voice from part one of this series. I'm Mariana Safranova. I'm a professor at the University of Delaware and uh, a joint fellow of the Joint Quantum Institute, University of Maryland. The incompatibility of quantum mechanics and gravity is unsatisfying for those of us that want one theory to explain everything. But in practice, it usually doesn't cause serious conflicts. Quantum mechanics deals with tiny things like atoms, and gravity starts to matter more on the scale of planets. But there are some remote settings deep in the universe where gravity and the quantum world might be forced to collide. At the center of black holes, gravity is so strong that even light can't get out. There, Einstein's theory of relativity stops making sense. General relativity would have you believe that at the center of a black hole, all the mass of what once was a star is contained in a dot of literally zero size. Physicists are an imaginative bunch, but even they agree that's bananas. A tiny spot the size of an electron? No problem. Literally zero size? No way. The basic idea is that quantum mechanics has to enter the picture somehow and prevent this nonsense conclusion from actually happening. Today, nearly a hundred years after these theories began their clash, Theorists are hard at work scheming up ways that quantum mechanics and gravity might play together. Unfortunately, there are very few ways to test these theories. After all, it's kind of tough to get your experiment to the center of a black hole. But there is some hope. 
We have other new generation tests which try to understand how does a quantum mechanical object behave under gravity. And uh, hopefully that actually helps us eventually to sort out how to bring together gravity and all the other fundamental forces and the quantum mechanics. This new generation of tests is one of the only settings here on Earth where quantum mechanics and gravity might be talking to each other. And it involves the main characters of this series, atoms. But it's not enough to just take an atom described by quantum mechanics and drop it from a rooftop. Although both gravity and quantum mechanics are important in that scenario, they each stay in their lane. For an experiment to give any insight into quantum gravity, the gravity needs to do something inside the atoms. Or quantum mechanics needs to change the way things fall. According to quantum gravity theorists, there are a few ways quantum mechanics and gravity might be quietly talking to each other inside the atom. We're going to focus on two of them. The first is that the strength of gravity, given by Newton's gravitational constant, represented by an uppercase G or big G, might actually not be a constant, but changing very slightly over time or in space because of quantum mechanics. The second prediction is that a cherished principle of gravity, that everything experiences gravity the same way, whether you're a chunk of metal, a cat, or a friendly Martian, might not be totally true. There could instead be a tiny difference that we haven't noticed yet. New experiments are just now getting ready to see if there are any quantum gravity shenanigans that we can detect. Let's start with the first one, the possibility that the gravitational constant big G is changing. Like the dark matter theories discussed in part one of the series, a lot of quantum gravity theories predict that big G is not actually a constant. For me, it seems to work about the same every time I drop the mic onto my foot. Ow! But perhaps it's changing such a tiny, tiny bit that none of us have noticed. The only way to catch big G in the act of changing is to measure it very precisely and watch it over time. But first, you have to measure it very precisely. The problem is, we don't have a great idea of how strong gravity actually is, at least when you compare it to other forces. The electromagnetic force, for example, is known to one part in 10 billion. That's like knowing the distance between the Earth and the Moon down to the width of your thumb. The force of gravity, big G, is only known to two parts in 100,000 like knowing the moon-to-earth distance down to about five city blocks. It's 200,000 times less precise. That gravitational constant, the Newtonian gravitational constant, that's been measured in various ways. It's not known to very high precision compared to the other, the other fundamental constants. It's a fundamental force in its own right, and the only way to measure it, really, is by the force of attraction between two bodies. So that's like a very active um, interest in the experimental community. That's Charles Clark, our second returning expert and the voice you heard at the top of the episode. I'm Charles Clark. I'm a fellow of the National Institute of Standards and Technology. The first ever measurement of the gravitational constant was done back in 1797 by a guy named Henry Cavendish. Cavendish went into his shed and hung a dumbbell by a wire from the ceiling. Then he hung two 350-pound lead balls around it. The gravitational force from the lead balls caused the dumbbell to twist ever so slightly, 
like a magnetic compass needle swinging towards a very weak magnet. By measuring exactly how much it twisted, he deduced the strength of the force of gravity. Sounds pretty simple, but it's actually extremely challenging to make sure the small movement is due only to those lead balls and nothing else. Cavendish had to stand outside of the shed, peering through a tiny hole in the wall to avoid disturbing the experiment with his gravitational self. He did this rain or shine over the course of a year. Modern measurements of Big G are essentially fancier versions of the same idea. Although they might be less grueling, they're still very difficult to get right, and so we're stuck with a measly two parts in a hundred thousand of precision. Adams might be able to help with this, and we'll come back to how in just a bit. For now, onto our second quantum gravity prediction. That different materials, like a hammer and a feather, might experience gravity slightly differently. True, if you did this experiment in your room today, you'd find that the hammer falls first. But that's because of air friction. The feather's shape is kind of designed to be held up by air, and it does its job well. As far as gravity goes, the current dogma is that it treats all matter equally, a cherished postulate known as the equivalence principle. This was tested on the moon, you may recall, in the Apollo, what is it, Apollo 13 mission, or Apollo 11. We checked it was actually Apollo 15. Where a hammer and a feather were dropped by an astronaut, and they both hit the surface of the moon at the same time. Even more precise measurements have been done in space, where other forces like air friction or Earth's gravity changing a bit from place to place don't muddy the waters. On a satellite mission in 2016, scientists measured the force required to keep two balls of the same weight, one titanium and one platinum, exactly in the same orbit. They confirmed the equivalence principle to one part in a hundred trillion. All of these measurements we've been talking about, Cavendish's shed, dropping things on the moon, keeping balls in orbit, are classical. They rely on familiar physics from our daily lives. But when you zoom in enough, our world acts according to quantum mechanics. And this is where atoms and the experiments we've been alluding to come to the rescue. Turns out when you look really closely, things we think of as particles, like atoms or even their internal pieces, protons, neutrons, and electrons, start to look like waves. Physicists call these matter waves. Here's Safranova again. Well, there are new experiments which now measure the gravitational constant by using atom interferometry, using the matter waves, instead of all of the previous classical experiments. Interferometry is nothing but a close look at the patterns formed by colliding waves of any kind. Picture yourself on an ocean shore. Off to the right, a motorboat speeds away from you, sending a wave to its left, crest after trough after crest after trough. Another boat passes on your left, sending a second wave towards the first. When the peaks of the two waves collide, a huge crest pops up just for a second. But when a dip from the left hits a crest from the right, they kind of cancel and the water is still for just a moment. This is called interference, and it occurs not only for water waves, but for sound waves or the electromagnetic waves that make up light. The most common interferometry technique is to take a single wave, any kind of wave, and split it into two paths, like a fork in a river. 
Then you reunite them and look at the interference pattern of crests and troughs. If the two paths were slightly different lengths, or if the wave traveled faster along one path than the other, you'll be able to tell by how much interference they generate. The same applies to atomic matter waves, and scientists can use matter wave interferometers to start looking for quantum gravity effects. Using matter wave interferometry to measure big G goes something like this. You cool your atoms down, and we're talking way down to just above absolute zero, until they become one big quantum wave. Then you send the matter wave along two paths. Next to one of the paths, you place something big and heavy, like a lead ball, taking care that it's far from the other path. The gravity of the lead ball will pull on the part of the atomic wave that passes close by, changing its path ever so slightly. Then, if you bring the two paths back together, they will form an interference pattern. The pattern tells scientists about the differences that the matter wave experienced along the two paths, and ultimately gives a pretty precise measurement of Big G. Starting in 2007, several research teams have measured Big G this way. The most precise one to date was done in 2014 by scientists in Italy and the Netherlands. They measured Big G to 150 parts per million. Physicists had hoped that these atom interferometers would be the saving grace of Big G measurements. And um, unfortunately, it didn't quite resolve the problems the classical experiments have. And the problem is that they're getting more and more precise. They're just not in agreement on the value of G within their precision. The atom interferometry didn't fully clarify this problem because now we have another set of measurements. But nevertheless, uh, this is a completely different way of measurement, which also has a promise of extreme precision. The best classical big G measurements, fancier versions of Cavendish's shed, are accurate to 12 parts per million. Or so they claim. But our overall knowledge of big G isn't as good as all that because the measurements don't all agree with each other or with the new atom interferometry experiments. This means something is going awry. The best atom interferometry measurements to date are still about 10 times less precise than the best classical ones. But the things that could go wrong with the matter wave experiments are completely different than the things that could go wrong with the classical dumbbells hanging from a string. So if researchers figure out what some of those issues are, and one day the classical and quantum measurements agree, we can be pretty confident that they aren't just both wrong the same exact way. And once we get a better handle on Big G, we can start to watch it over time to see if it slips up. While researchers can use one atom interferometer to make progress on the value of Big G, it turns out that two atom interferometers side by side can give precise tests of the equivalence principle. In this case, there's no need for lead balls. The Earth's gravity itself provides the difference between the two paths in each interferometer. In one interferometer, an atomic wave gets split in two. One half gets shot up into the air and then comes back down, experiencing the Earth's gravity on the way, while the other stays put. When they recombine, the resulting interference has information about the gravity experienced by the flying bit. The second interferometer does the exact same thing, but with a different kind of atom. If the equivalence principle holds, the two interference patterns made by the matter waves will be exactly the same. A recent experiment with two atom interferometers confirmed equivalence to one part in a trillion. That's still about 100 times less precise than the classical experiments, but there's more room to improve. 
For better measurements, scientists plan to put their atom interferometers on a rocket and send them to space, where atoms can fall for a long time while still staying within the experimental apparatus. This trick promises a precision unreached by any experiment to date. Even if they haven't quite reached the precision of their classical counterparts yet, atom interferometers are some of the only experiments that might force gravity and quantum mechanics into the same realm, short of traveling to the center of a black hole. And researchers are hard at work on the next generation of higher precision atom interferometers. Even if it seems like a long shot, finding that the strength of gravity is varying just a teensy bit or that different kinds of matter fall at ever so slightly different rates, would be entirely new physics, opening the door to more experiments that put quantum gravity to the test. Here's Clark again. I'm, I'm hoping for new physics, because you see what we've got now compared to what we have, the wonders of modern technology. Let's, let's say nuclear energy. The neutron was first discovered in 1932. Within like little more than 10 years, become the most powerful, you know, base is the most powerful source of energy ever known. So yeah, I, to be honest, I'm sort of hoping for something that just completely breaks the mold because they're going to have to ask us physicists to fix it. That's it for this episode. I hope you're on the edge of your seat, waiting for the next level of precision in gravity measurements with atom interferometers. A big thanks this week to Charles Clark and Mariana Safranova for chatting with us about these possibilities, as well as to Ted Jacobson, a physics professor at the University of Maryland, for offering gravity consultations. We'll be back soon with another episode. For Relatively Certain, I'm Dina Genkinoff.